Uh, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Let's take a few seconds tonight uh, as we prepare to start our uh, study tonight of, of Zechariah, Zechariah 14. That's where we are. Uh, several other things we have to do, but let's uh, uh, close our eyes and bow our heads. You have a few seconds, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful, continue to be thankful for your extraordinary provision in our individual lives and in the life of our church, the National Capital Bible Church. We're thankful for um, the space that you've given us here. We're thankful for the faithful attendance and uh, the giving that um, the church provides. We're thankful, Father, that we have... uh, an opportunity to serve you here. Help us to remember that that is what we're doing. We are uh, serving, uh, learning, and growing so that we might be able to honor you and have a greater impact in the devil's world. Uh, We know that there is a great deal of uh, cosmic influence here, certainly in the, uh, the capital region, Naturally, this is where much of the satanic influence would arrive. And we pray, Father, that uh, we might be able to do our part in shining a light into the darkness that is there and uh, providing uh, input and uh, support for establishment principles and divine institutions so that this nation might once more revert to our spiritual heritage, uh, the biblical principles on which it was founded. We pray, Father, uh, as we finish this year, that we would, in fact, finish uh, finish strong, Father, and be prepared for the new year, the next year that you have given us. Each year, of course, is another opportunity for us as a church uh, to grow, to support each other, to be an encouragement, but also to take the gospel to others so that they might uh, have eternal life and eternal relationship with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Quickly here, uh, one of the events uh, during World War II, uh, or really was a location in an event, was uh, occurred at a place called North Platte, Nebraska. And there was a canteen that opened there. And it says the whole effort started by mistakes. mistake. Several days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, people in North Platte, Nebraska, heard that their own Company D of the Nebraska National Guard would be passing through town on its way from an Arkansas training camp to the west coast. A crowd gathered at the Union Station train station, at the Union Pacific train station, to greet the boys with cookies, candies, and small gifts. 
When the train arrived, it turned out it was transporting a company D, but not from Nebraska, from Kansas. After a moment of disappointment, somewhere in the crowd asked, well, what are we waiting for? And they began handing their gifts to the war-bound soldiers. The next day, Mrs. Ray Wilson wrote the North Platte Daily Bulletin to suggest that the town open a canteen to greet all troop trains stopping there. Let's do something and do it in a hurry, she wrote. Beginning on Christmas Day, 1941, and continuing through World War II, the town offered itself as the North Platte Canteen. For 365 days a year, volunteers from the remote community of 12,000 and surrounding hamlets provided hot coffee, donuts, sandwiches, and encouragement for young soldiers passing through. Hundreds of families, churches, schools, businesses, clubs pitched in to help raise money, buy supplies, and make food. They greeted every soldier on every train with gifts and good wishes. By April 1st, 1946, its last day, the North Platte Canteen had served more than 6 million GIs. You don't forget that when you're overseas, one veteran told Bob Green, author of Once Upon a Town, The Miracle of the North Platte Canteen. There was no place I ever knew of or ever heard about that went to that great effort. A lot of people might be willing to do it, or at least they might say they would be willing, but in North, but in North Platte, Nebraska, they did it. Uh, my father, uh, when he uh, was taken, removed from uh, his uh, sea service duty because of his hearing, he ended up being a train captain. That's what the Navy called them. And there were many uh, different tr- uh, basic training sites. Uh, today the Navy has mostly Great Lakes, but uh, one of them was up in New York, and his job was to take a train load of recruits, not recruits, but they were uh, seamen who had just uh, finished boot camp, and take them to the West Coast where they were going go to tra- go through training and then probably join the fleet. And I remember asking him if, and he did that for probably two, two years, and I asked him if he'd ever heard of the North Platte can- Canteen. He said, heard of it. My train never went through there. Uh, they were always north of that going through uh, Chicago and then... Uh, west through um, I think um, uh, South Dakota in that area. Anyhow uh, it was a great story. I also wanted to uh, read a quick letter here from uh, Jim and Phyllis Myers, uh, missionaries that we support and I thought this was an excellent letter. Dear friends, and this was written on 27 December 2017, so very timely. Uh, We bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto us a child has been born, and unto us a son has been given. His name was called Jesus, for he saves his people from their sins. So we proclaim the praises of him 
who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That light is the light of men, the true life, light that lights every man coming into the world. Thanks be to God for his ineffable gift. Ineffable meaning too great to be expressed or described. The year's end is upon us. How the past 12 months have rushed by. Of course, time isn't going any faster and perhaps we are going slower. But one thing is certain, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Our time is a gift from the Lord to be used wisely to accomplish His purposes. And we are commanded to redeem the time. As stated in the epigram, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Whatever time the Lord gives us in the future, may it be spent to accomplish His purpose. His will indeed make it a happy and blessed new year. This will may indeed make it a happy and blessed new year. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Psalm 31, 14 and 15. Jim says, upon our return to Ukraine from our summer tour in the United States, we immediately immersed ourselves in the work. We opened the new school term at Word of God Bible College with my teaching on a course on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. In October, I taught a survey of the 12 Old Testament historical books. Right after that, I worked with Mark Musser and his team in teaching Galatians and Life of Christ modules for DM2 material, of the DM2 material. Then it was off to the east of Ukraine, five and a half hours on the express train to the city of Kharkiv to teach a two-week course, Man, Sin, and Salvation at Ron Minton's International Baptist Bible College. This is a picture of uh, the Bible college where he was. And for those of you here, uh, did I have it? Let's go back here and try this again. Yeah, there's Jim right here. Um, Phyllis and I went to Israel for two weeks to attend a Christian leaders conference held at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. This was a 50-hour conference designed to educate Christian leaders about the Jewish Holocaust that took place under Adolf Hitler. This was a very sobering conference as it presented facts about the slaughter of more than 6 million Jews as well as prevailing attitudes among Europeans at the time who knew what was going on and either approved of it or chose to ignore it. The anti-Semitism seen in Hitler was also widely held among many other nations in Europe. In fact, more than one-fourth of the Jews were murdered not by the Nazis, but by groups and individuals living in countries occupied by the Germans and who were sympathetic 
to their philosophies. The single driving force behind Hitler's scheme was his long-held hatred of Jews and an intense desire to rid the world of every single one of them. In his book, Mein Kampf, My Struggle, he declared that he believed he was doing the work of the Lord in seeking to destroy the Jews. Just before he committed suicide, he wrote in his last will and testament, But before everything else, I call upon the leadership of the nation and those who follow it to observe the racial laws most carefully, to fight mercilessly against the prisoners of all the peoples of the world, international Jewry. The poisoners, excuse me, to fight mercilessly against the poisoners of all the people of the world, international Jewry, set down in Berlin, April 29th, 1945, 4 o'clock, Adolf Hitler. We see anti-Semitism rising again in Europe, and indeed around the world as evidenced by the recent vote in the UN against America's declaration that it would move its embassy to Jerusalem. Ultimately, this is a statement of rejection of God and his choice of Israel. Yet, it is through Israel that the world is to be blessed. For the Savior of mankind came into the world, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. May the son of Abraham, the son of David, whose birth we celebrate at this time of year, bring you peace and joy, confidence and stability, and purpose in the coming year. He says, while they were in Jerusalem, one chilly and rainy evening, while we were walking back to the hotel, I noticed a long line of media vans with satellite dishes sprouting from the roof. There are roofs. I commented to Phyllis that something was going to happen. Then we were surprised to see the American flag being projected onto the walls of old Jerusalem, followed by images of the Israeli flag, and then both together. We didn't know what was happening at the time, but it was thrilling to see it nonetheless. Unfortunately, I didn't have my camera with me to get a photo. When we got to our room, we turned on the news and watched President Trump make his announcement of moving the American embassy to Jerusalem. We did get a couple of pictures the next day which express the attitude of so many in Israel. This is one of the pictures that he sent. God bless Trump. From Jerusalem, D.C., David's capital, to Washington, D.C. And, of course, in the middle of Jerusalem, J-E-R, you have U-S-A. So from Jerusalem, District of Columbia, or whatever it is, David's capital, excuse me, from Jerusalem, D.C., David's capital, to Washington, D.C. Rather interesting. Uh, and then this was another picture, which is great, at City Hall in Jerusalem, put up the American flag with the Israeli flag. He goes on to say, our schedule for the coming spring is ambitious, with two courses to be taught at Word of, of God College, three weeks of teaching in Brazil and two weeks in Zambia. What a privilege we have to teach the Word and what mercy the Father has bestowed on us in giving us the health and stamina to continue serving Him. 
We thank all of you for your prayers, your encouragement, and your support. Only by grace, Jim and Phyllis. So that's a, a report from Jim and Phyllis. Uh, happy to do that as we uh, support them and pray for his ministry that it will continue to be successful. All right. We are in Zechariah. Zechariah 14. Let me read us into our text. We're going to cover a couple more uh, verses today. Then I want to answer a question that was asked last week. And um, that will take up a little bit of our time. So we're in Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 verses, let me just begin verse 1. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And we know that the day of the Lord is going to be the end times. End times is going to begin um, uh, after the rapture. We can include the rapture in end times. But it's generally understood that once the rapture occurs, then soon thereafter we are going to begin to see the scheduled events of the Jewish calendar, we can say the Jewish calendar, which uh, the Lord gave us in Daniel 9, uh, 24 through 27. But behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. This is your, is going to be Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to be under attack during uh, Armageddon. What I want to do next week is also review the Armageddon campaign in its totality, but uh, let me just continue here. Verse 2, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is the Armageddon campaign, and uh, the Antichrist is going to be leading this campaign, but we can see that uh, God is in overall control Uh, He is a sovereign God, and he has not lost control of human history, nor will he ever. The city shall be taken, meaning Jerusalem. Uh, It's going to come under control of the Antichrist and his forces. There's going to be pockets of resistance. It says the houses will be rifled. In other words, they're going to be completely uh, 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 plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into captivity. So there's going to be a large portion of them uh, that are uh, captured and taken, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. There is a remnant. There are going to be at least uh, a third of the Jews in and around uh, Judah that are going to survive. Here it says uh, half, the remnant here, will not be cut off. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. We have a remnant that is uh, held up in the city. Uh, The Lord is going to fight for them as he fights in the day of battle. And we went through uh, quite a few uh, passages that demonstrated that the Lord is a mighty warrior. Verse 4, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And I showed you some of these pictures. This is a good representation, or maybe not the best representation, but at least there's a set of feet on a hill that is overlooking 
Jerusalem. Matter of fact, right uh, between the legs there, you can see what appears to be the uh, Temple Mount and the Temple. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And I went through quite a few of these pictures with you last week, uh, showing you where the Mount of Olives is in relationship to uh, the Temple Mount. The Mount of Olives is on the east side of the Kidron Valley. As a matter of fact, I showed you these pictures. I think I went to that picture first, and then I bounced back to these. Uh, this shows you uh, the northern uh, direction north is to the top of the, the map. And you can see here that... Uh, This is amazing. Pointer just is a little bit contrary tonight. There we are. All right. Here's the Kidron Valley. The Hinnon Valley is to the south. Over here is the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. And so his feet are going to be on the Mount of Olives facing Jerusalem to the west. And uh, we see... Also, here's another picture that shows the Kidron Valley. Uh, Kidron Valley. Hmm. There we are. Again, Kidron Valley right here. Uh, to the south is the Hinnom Valley and the Mount of Olives over here. The Mount of Olives uh, is a pretty good uh, promontory to the east, and uh, it's, I think, going to be... Um, and then here you can see... Uh, here you can see looking from the east from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and uh, this was finally an artist rendition of the valley sort of the valley that split and this is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ returning with uh, his legions that are coming with him uh, angels and we believe church age believers <clears throat> so those are the pictures that we see regarding the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. And every time I see that or hear anybody discussing it, it always seems like it's a very slight corridor. But um, more than likely, it's going to be a rather large one because... Uh, for the remnant to pass through and pass through quickly and also for to provide them for security. Verse 5. Then you all shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. And we're not certain where Azal is, but reaching to, touching Azal, it appears that that will be the furthest extent of the valley. Yes, you all shall flee. And you all... As you all fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, 
king of Judah. We went to uh, Amos 1.1 and saw the reference to this um, earthquake. It's apparently going to be, uh, or apparently it was, quite an earthquake because we're two centuries later and it's mentioned here, although certainly God the Holy Spirit's memory would remember it very clearly. So he's reminding Zechariah, but I think Zechariah probably remembers it as well. But it's going to be like that. Uh, people fleeing, apparently, Jerusalem because of the earthquake. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with him. And I don't know that we had the opportunity to turn to um, Revelation 20, but let's do that now. Let's turn to Revelation 20, and we can see the Lord returning. Actually, it's in Revelation 19 is where I want us to go. In Revelation 19, it says in verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him, the horse, was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Uh, and we believe that this is a reference. Uh, Zechariah 14:5, when it says, Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints, the holy ones, with him. This is the reference here. Reference to uh, uh, Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. And uh, so that's going to be quite a time. Most people uh, wonder who that's going to be uh, returning with him, as that's just the angels, but we believe it's church age believers as well. Now, verse 6 continues. Verse 6 says, It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. Now, uh, what verse 6 is telling us here, verse 6, is that Zechariah once more retains the focus of the end time, the time of the Lord's return. And in the verse, it says the lights. It's sort of interesting. Uh, it's not the normal word for lights. This is Yagar, Yakar rather. And it really means precious. It means rare. It means splendid. So uh, there will be no light. The lights will diminish. And what this appears to be saying is that um, lights, uh, light itself is a very precious thing. If you don't have light, you are, well, essentially lost. I mean, there's just very little of anything you can do, particularly if it's um, pitch black. And I think that's an indication here that light is a precious thing. It's a splendid thing. And 
the translation lights here, or luminaries, maybe another way of doing this, uh, is an indication how, of how valuable it is. And, of course, uh, our Lord is the light of the world. And that refers to the gospel and the truth. And we know that that certainly is uh, splendid or precious. And then it says, the lights will diminish. And the word here for diminish means to thicken, condense, even congeal. Uh, some translations uh, take this to mean that they're going to freeze. And um, not sure that that's exactly what it means, but the action is such that the light is going to diminish. So secondly here, the Lord is going to use cosmic changes to influence the battle. He's going to bring darkness. And the transformation here, the translation rather, is a bit difficult. But it appears that the heavenly sources of light freeze so that they don't give light. There's a congealing of them. There's a sort of a sense here of them freezing and the light being restricted. But anyhow, the Lord's going to use these cosmic changes. And there's probably uh, nothing more demoralizing than when you think that nature is against you. You may remember there's a couple battles in the Old Testament where uh, lightning or thunder or hailstones falling from heaven, um, they can have a significant impact on morale not to mention your physical body if it's hailstones. Thirdly, the Lord uses supernatural darkness, has used it previously. We saw it in uh, the Exodus, part of the, uh, the plagues that fell upon the Egyptians. Darkness, so dark that they couldn't see to get out of bed. And then, of course, uh, Matthew 27.45 is the... During the crucifixion, God is going to blanket the earth in darkness. Uh, therefore, God has used darkness for various purposes, and he's going to use it again. Point four here, other scripture foretell of this darkness. Um, and some of these are fairly interesting passages. Isaiah is the one of the ones I have here. We'll just look at a couple of these. Isaiah 13.9. Turn to Isaiah 13.9. Isaiah 13.9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Isaiah 13.9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light the sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine so that's Isaiah 13 9 and 10 Joel 2 31 has a reading that we've seen before Joel then Amos Obadiah so Joel Hosea Joel Joel 2.31 says the sun shall be turned into darkness uh, 
and the moon and the blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. There are some who have want to believe that this is blood moons, blood moons that supposedly uh, are going to happen or ha- have happened, but uh, not not true, not to be. And then Joel 3.15. Joel 3.15 says, beginning in verse 14, Multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Valley of decision here means uh, the Lord is returning and uh, there needs to be decisions made regarding the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Now I've given some other uh, passages here. Uh, Amos 5.18, Matthew 24.29-30. Uh, we see darkness in Revelation 6.12, 8.8-12. And nine one through two. So uh, this darkness is not only found here in Zechariah fourteen six, and then point five. God uses this darkness not only to confuse, frustrate, and bewilder the enemy, but to reveal that He is the master of the universe. Uh, I think that's a marvelous thing to understand. Uh, the person who can control uh, the climate and nature is certainly the master of the universe. He controls all of nature, and his power, of course, God's power, is simply limitless. Uh, one of the comments that I found in the Bible Knowledge Commentary was, at the heart of this section is the affirmation that the Lord will be king over the whole earth and that he will be accepted as the one Lord goes on to say that this great pronunciation pronouncement is set in the context of changes in illumination, climate, and topography, which God will bring on Jerusalem, Palestine, and no doubt uh, will extend to the whole earth. So it's kind of kind of great. Uh, verse seven here, as we move to verse seven, Zechariah seven. It says, It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Uh, What's interesting about this verse is that it appears that the day and the night, the darkness and the light, are going to be different than what is normally expected. So, uh, God is controlling the darkness. Uh, the darkness will come during the day and the light will come at night. Um, uh, and it says, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Uh, the sense there means it's known only to the Lord. Uh, so our first point here, this will be a, day's, a day whose characteristics will be known only to the Lord. Uh, and the way the word is used here, it shall be one day that is known to the Lord. Um, not completely certain that this is all going to happen on just one day, but the sense is that the Lord is in control of it. There will be 
questions about what is happening, but only the Lord has the answers, much like global warming today. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw this. I was going to try to print it out, and I kind of just slipped my mind. But uh, several months ago, there was an asteroid that passed very close to the Earth. Uh, Well, as close as you know, most some asteroids do, but it was an asteroid that uh, was moving through the uh, our solar system. And when science first picked it up and saw it coming, uh, of course there were those who speculated that this was possibly an alien spaceship and that they were uh, monitoring uh, life in the solar system, uh, monitoring life on Earth. And as it approached, it was, you know, they got a little, a little bit better look at it, and it was sort of cigar-shaped, you know, like a capsule. And so they thought, yes, this may be a probe that is being sent from some uh, life system somewhere else and so science as soon as they could they focused uh, saddle uh, the uh, radar on it and they were listening listening to see if there was anything emanating from it and they listened to it and listened to it and listened to it and listened to it as it crossed however close it was to the earth I've forgotten and then passed on out of the solar system and you know what they heard nothing and they were that was a great discovery. We listened and we heard nothing from this asteroid. You know, this is what passes for human wisdom today. And I'm not really going to comment on the scientists that were part of this, but uh, one of them said, well, you know, it's probably a good thing that it wasn't a... Um, a probe, uh, because uh, these the alien life that's out there would find out uh, what we're like, and uh, they may not be pleased. Oh boy! Anyhow, just a little bit of the lighter side. Uh, point two here: the day will be far from normal. This the days during the tribulation. They're going to be far from normal. For during the day there's going to be dark and during the night there's going to be light. Uh, Point three, the glory of the coming Messiah and his glorious kingdom will be preceded by dark days of judgment and dramatic cosmic upheaval. And then when we get to to verse eight, then we begin uh, what we have regarding the millennium. Now, Last time I had a question. I want to address this now. It's kind of a fun study. Uh, I was, I made some comment, at least I think I remember making a comment, not sure what it was, about uh, the millennium and who was going to be alive and who was going to enter it and who was going to be ruling. I guess it was when uh, the Lord returns. He's returning with uh, his holy ones. Who is that? And... Um, 
if that's going to be church-age believers, um, what will we be doing when we return with him? And what will others on earth be doing? And so the question really was uh, about the various resurrections. And uh, we know that we, as uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ during the church age, are going to be, those who have died, are going to be resurrected uh, at the rapture. Well, I decided to simply review. Uh, let's do a, a review of the resurrections so that we have an idea of what's going to happen and when with regard to resurrections, uh, believers down through the ages, not just in the church age, but also uh, Old Testament saints, uh, those who are going to live during the tribulation and maybe even those who are going to be living during the millennium. So when it comes to resurrections, there are going to be two overall resurrections. We can we don't often uh, view it this way, but there are going to be two overall resurrections. We're going to have a resurrection to life and a resurrection to condemnation. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12. Turn to Daniel chapter 12, Ezekiel, Daniel. So there's going to be two resurrections. And Daniel, marvelous book, Daniel really gives a lot of information about a lot of events in human history. And in Daniel 12, verse 2, it says, And many of those who sleep or are dead in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We also see a very similar thing in John 5:29. In John 5:29 the Lord says John 5:29 Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming the time is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, obey his call, and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation or judgment. We also have Revelation 20 describes these two different Resurrections. Revelation 20. Beginning in verse 4. This is... We'll, we'll come here again. It says... And this is uh, after the tribulation. And the beginning of the... Of the uh, the millennium. And I saw thrones, and they, and by the way, the millennium is described the, the thousand years in verses one through 
uh, 3, but it says, And I saw thrones, in verse 4, and they sat on them. And we believe that they that's here are church-age believers, and we'll also see probably Old Testament saints. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. We remember that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3 that someday we will judge angels. Well, uh, here, judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls, the persons of those who had been beheaded, the martyrs, for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their head, or on their hands. So these are the tribulational saints who are martyred during the tribulation. He sees those as well. So not only are church-age believers and Old Testament saints, but we also have the tribulational mar- martyrs included here. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, these are going to be the unbelievers did not live again until the thousand years were finished. That is sort of a parenthesis there, verse 5. But the rest of the dead did not. And then we pick it up again. In other words, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Uh, the parenthesis, setting it aside. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So, the first resurrection of these two is going to be the resurrection of, you know, to life or um, believers. And so I use Revelation 20, verses 4 through uh, 5 here, 6, um, to sort of jumpstart us in our... Um, Resurrection. So, the first resurrection is the redeemed in Christ. Now, I'm using the term redeemed in Christ because not only will church-age believers be redeemed in Christ, but Christ, the name Christ means anointed one. And so, Old Testament saints can find themselves to be redeemed in the Messiah as well. And so will... Uh, tribulational saints first of all here we go we start the first resurrection and this is the list of those who will be part of the first resurrection the first resurrection has at least or I'm just going to say about five segments Uh, the first one is Christ as the first fruits and 1 Corinthians 15 20 provides us with that information. 1 Corinthians 15. Very illuminating passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about resurrection. He's talking about resurrection from the dead uh, because the Corinthians were having a little bit of trouble with it. In verse 20, he continues his topic, but now Christ is risen from the dead, and this is resurrection. So resurrection is the topic, and if we have that in mind, we 
this is a fairly easy passage to understand. And now Christ is risen. He's resurrected from the dead, physical, physically dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Physical death here. For since by man came death, physical death, this is Adam, for since by man, Adam, came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Well, we've just been told this is Christ. This is Jesus. He is the man also by whom comes resurrection of the dead, the physically dead. For in Adam, and you can tell the parallelism here, for since by man, and then for as in Adam, so we've got man and Adam here, for as in Adam all die. And so this is Genesis. And by the way, Paul represents this as being true. So that Adam is an actual person. You know, there are a lot of people today that say, well, that's sort of uh, an allegory. It's um, not, you know, there really wasn't an Adam and Eve and they, they really weren't in the garden. Now, there may have been, uh, you know, people, but this is just a, uh, a story that's trying to teach a moral truth. No, Paul treats it as if it was a historical fact. For as in Adam all die physically, even so in Christ, these are the those who are believers, shall be made alive, shall be resurrected. Verse 23 says, but each one in his own order. Tagma is our word here. Tagma, and it means order. It also means division. It can mean um, a military term for uh, ranks. But each one in his own turn might be a better way to describe it. Uh, but uh, it's it can be pictured as Pastor Theme used to do as a battalion passing in review. God being the reviewing officer and the various companies. And the first company is Christ the First Fruits. That would be Company A. Christ the First Fruits. And he, of course, he has already passed the reviewing stand. And then afterwards, those who are Christ's at his coming. Well, that hasn't occurred. And so, Company A has passed the reviewing stand, but Company B, and the next one to pass the reviewing stand, is going to be, be here, church-age believers at the rapture. So, in our first resurrection, our first rank, first order, first unit by the reviewing stand is going to be Christ as the first fruits. And we have 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. You can also add Romans 6, 9 and Colossians 1, 18. But secondly, the second group here, or B, 1B, is going to be church-age believers at the rapture. And we've reviewed 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 18 um, many times. Uh, Paul says, I would not have you be ignorant brethren about those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to talk about the rapture. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, so just turn over 
to 1 Corinthians 15.51 and verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And the mystery here is something that they have never heard. And what is that? It's the rapture. We shall not all sleep. In other words, some are not going to die. We shall not all sleep, church-age believers. But we shall all be changed. Whether we die or whether we're alive, we're going to be changed. Resurrection body. Verse 52. In a moment, in the smallest unit of time, in a twinkling of an eye, and this is a rapid eye movement, at the last trumpet, And this trumpet here is a church-age trumpet. This isn't a tribulational trumpet. So this isn't the last of the trumpet judgments. This is, and it's used as a call, meaning there's going to be a summons. And Paul is simply using a trumpet. Now, it very well may be a literal trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead church-age believers, will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed for this corruptible, this human corruptible body, fallen body, must put on incorruption. This is the resurrection body. Must be changed. And this mortal must put on immortality. So this is the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52. Thirdly, C here. One C is Old Testament saints and tribulational martyrs at the end of the tribulation. And this takes us back, or at least I'm going to take us back, to Daniel chapter 12 again. Daniel chapter 12. And we're not only going to see chapter 12, but we'll see... or verse 2 so we go back here and what this tells us remember that Daniel doesn't see the rapture Daniel doesn't see the church age Daniel is viewing the uh, age of Israel with this tribulation attached to it and therefore what he sees here Uh, in verse well let's just begin verse 1 at that time and this is the end of the tribulation at that time Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people so Michael one of Michael's responsibilities he is the archangel he's the only one that we know that's identified as an archangel some people say Gabriel's an archangel too but He's never called an archangel. Only Michael is. Michael is the angelic guard for Israel. And this is one of the reasons why we believe that there are other angels that may guard other nations. Don't know that. But Michael is assigned to Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble. This is the tribulation. Never, such as never was seen there. Uh, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Well, this is exactly what we're studying in Zechariah 14. Everyone who is found written the book, 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Uh, this is one of the indications that we know that the Old Testament saints are going to be raised at the end of the tribulation. And we'll see here in a minute these tribulational martyrs. Uh, verse 13, the last verse in Daniel's prophecy here, Daniel 12:13 says, But you, Daniel, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Isn't this great? Daniel was given this information. Uh, Daniel, go on your way. You may not understand all this. As a matter of fact, he's told to seal it up. Don't tell anybody. And there's information there that uh, somewhat difficult. But he says, don't worry about it. Go your way to the end. For you shall rest. And rest here means that he's going to die. And you will arise. You're going to be resurrected to your inheritance at the end of the days. And so the end of the days here believed to be the tribulation. Now, uh, I was going to add a couple more verses here, and it looks like I must have just omitted them. Um, But let's go to Revelation 20, verse 4. Back to Revelation 20, verse 4. In Revelation 20, verse 4. Let me do something else here. Let's hold your finger in 20 and turn back to 6. Revelation 6. Revelation 6, verse 9. This is in the middle of the tribulation. We're looking at the first seal, second seal, third seal, fourth seal, and then the fifth seal, judgment, as it's often called. And here, we uh, see... And this is... Uh, John, and this is what he sees. Then he opened the fifth seal. This is the Lord Jesus Christ opened the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, how long, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? In other words, the unbelievers, those who reject him. Verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Um, Many of you know who uh, Tommy Ice is. When Tommy Ice teaches this, he says, These are the tribulational martyrs. And they have died. Their souls have gone to heaven, bodies into the grave. And they're saying, how long until we're going to be avenged? And Tommy I says, they're told to take a number. Take a number and wait. Um, they're, they're given a white robe and told to go over and sit down and wait. 
Well, they wait until Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, this is rulers, and the ones who sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. These are the martyrs. We just saw them in chapter 6. For their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, in chapter 6, they are not raised yet. They don't have the resurrection bodies. It sounds like they're given a white robe, told to take a seat over here until they can get the resurrection body. But here, in Revelation 20, they are there. And they are judging prior to the thousand-year reign. So, this is one of the ways that we sort of extrapolate an understanding that the Old Testament saints and the tribulational martyrs are going to be resurrected somehow, sometime at the end of the tribulation. We don't have specific details, and it's a little bit hard for us to identify exactly when that time is, but it's after the campaign of Armageddon, and then they will join the... uh, church age believers in judging we have just a couple more things here to to look to address there are going to be two witnesses of the tribulation they are going to be slain in revelation 11 7 and then they're resurrected in verse 11 so we're here in revelation so let's turn to chapter 11 and in verse 7 This is talking about the two witnesses who are going to be exceedingly effective. In verse 7 it says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Verse 11 says, Now after three and a half days the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. This appears to be their resurrection and therefore while we don't normally put them in here um, the main resurrections are going to be Christ as the first fruits church age believers at the rapture Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation tribulational martyrs at the end of the tribulation we do have this resurrection of these two witnesses and then finally I'll throw in E that was D this is E millennial believers I put, if possible, if necessary, at the end of the millennium. Uh, You know, what we don't know about the millennium, and we could fill volumes and volumes, but what we do know is that at the end of the millennium, or excuse me, the end of the tribulation, there are going to be uh, living unbelievers and living believers. The living unbelievers are going to be judged and cast into the lake of fire. What's interesting is as we read in Matthew 25:41 and after and following uh, those who are living unbelievers at the end of the tribulation aren't judged at the great white throne judgment. They don't need to go to the great white throne judgment they go right to the lake of fire. That's interesting. Um, And that's what we see in Matthew 25, 
Matthew 26. Matthew 25, it says, uh, Then he will say to those, uh, to those on his left, they are cursed. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it's believed that they go, they don't need to go to the uh, uh, great white throne judgment. Now, uh, for those who are alive in physical bodies, they go right into the millennium. Now, we're told that there's going to be very little, if any, death during the millennium, except for those who are disobedient. And I don't know, nobody knows, if there are, during that 1,000 years, going to be any believers that die. But if they do, they'll probably be resurrected at the end of the millennium. And so I've just added that, that one point here, point E. Uh, the other thing that's interesting as we think about that is that these will be humans that, be, that finish the tribulation, enter the millennium, and so sometime, somewhere, they're going to have to get their resurrection body, and we think that that's at the end of the millennium. Uh, one of the speculations here, and I had a conversation with a pastor friend of mine today about this, is that what about you know, those who enter the millennium as elderly folks? You know, uh, There's bound to be someone who survives the tribulation as a believer, who may be in, well, let's say, 70s or 80s. Are they then going to live a thousand years, you know, at that age? Or will they be rejuvenated? Or are they even going to be able to continue a long life? In other words, they've already lived 80 years. Are they then going to live for another thousand years? And, of course, we don't have any of those answers. So it's rather... Uh, time-consuming and unprofitable to speculate. But anyhow, then, lastly, the second resurrection, the unredeemed. And we've read the passage in Revelation 25, but I'm there right now anyhow. In Revelation 25, it says that, but the rest of the dead shall not live again until the thousand years were finished. Now, no place in the Bible is it identified as the second resurrection, but since the first one is identified as the first resurrection, all those who were part of the first resurrection, we simply assign the title, the second resurrection. And we see it in Revelation 20, um, verse 5, and then... In 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, because they weren't found in the book of life, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, meaning those who were given up from death and Hades, were judged, each one according to his works, what he was able to accomplish. That's all he has to stand on. 
Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Uh, now, I don't know if that answers all the questions regarding the resurrections, but um, those who return with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he's on a white horse. Those who are returning with him are the holy ones. We see that in Zechariah 14.5. Uh, the holy ones, we believe, are going to be church-age believers. And either just before that or just after that, uh, Old Testament saints and tribulational martyrs are going to be resurrected. And part of those who will enter the millennium and be acting as judges for living humanity that enters the millennium. So hopefully that answers all of your questions about the end time. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these texts of scriptures. We, scripture, we don't have all the answers that we would like, uh, but we don't need them. Uh, we'll learn soon enough when we return with our Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent. But before that, Father, we are looking forward to his return at the rapture. But Father, we pray that we would be prepared Help us to live our lives in light of eternity, which means in anticipation of the Lord Jesus Christ's return. Help us to have compassion on those who do not believe. Father, we know that you are uh, waiting, giving time, allowing those to believe who do not believe. And we pray, Father, that they would hear the gospel, that they would respond positively. And if we can be used to give them the gospel, help us not, Father, to be uh, hesitant to do so. We, Father, ask for our, again for your blessing upon our nation, upon our president, and upon uh, those who are advising him. We pray that those who are uh, opposing, those who out of hatred and anger are opposing him, we pray that they would be frustrated uh, and not be successful. And we pray, Father, that the nation would respond positively and that we might return, Father, to um, our biblical principles upon which we were founded. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.